So I, I think in reality, that's probably where we are uh, okay. at the moment. Very cool. Now, like you mentioned earlier, with the recall of the stride now due to the corrosion issues, um, a patient actually asked about the fit bone. Does it also have the risk of having a corrosion issue, possibly causing osteolysis, or does the material makeup of the fit bone not make this an issue? The short answer is I simply don't know. Um, and I, but I'm not aware of any osteolysis complications in the fit bone. As we've heard, it's been around for a very long time. Um, since 1997. So presumably, if there would have been issues like that, and it, it was made in Germany at that time, um, I, I believe it's still made there. Um, you know, so you can imagine, uh, no disrespect to the Germans, I'm from German descent as well. But you can imagine that if there was a problem, they would have picked it up very quickly and stopped the, stopped the nail. So in a way, I think that gives me reassurance that it's probably okay. But like I said, I honestly, personally don't know whether there is a problem like that. I don't know. I think the, the weight-bearing concept of the nail is a big thing for, for most people out there. Um, you know, that's probably the biggest thing out there at the moment is, you know, is the nail weight-bearing? How much weight can you take? Um, you know, I'm going to be running very soon if I have a weight-bearing nail versus I'm going to be wheelchair-bound if I don't have a weight-bearing nail. I want to dispel that myth. I think the reality is we're breaking both your femurs um, surgically, but we're breaking them. Uh, we're putting a thick you know, 12 millimeter, 13 millimeter rod down the middle of the, of the bone. And then we're pulling it apart slowly to make you taller. Um, I don't think anybody can walk on that normally very soon after that sort of surgery, right? That is painful. It is a big operation. So in my mind, the, the, the focus should shift away from whether it's weight bearing or not to whether it's a functional uh, product that allows you joint range of motion and functional mobilization. So yes, it would be fantastic if we could all go running on our nail on day one. But the reality of the matter is none of us will do that because of the pain involved and because of the massive surgery involved. So what is more important is to have a physiotherapy team that will guide you safely through the process post-operatively and get you up and walking. So even though I'm not using weight-bearing nails, my patients are out of the bed on day one and they're exercising the knee, they're exercising the hips. When they are ambulating, they're not putting their full weight on the, on the nail because they're offloading on the walking frame. Um, and yes, it's not the same as walking on, a, on your legs normally, but it's certainly not to say that you're gonna be in a wheelchair doing nothing for three months. That, that is simply not true. Another question that patients had about the fit bone, what diameter sizes does it come in? Is it just the 11 millimeter and the 13 millimeter? Yeah, the standard standard ones are those. It's an 11 slash 12 and then a 13. Um, so they're pretty thick and, um, you know, they're strong. So, so of course, that, that helps in the weight-bearing sort of argument to a certain extent. Um, the reality is the Fitbone was also designed with two concepts in mind. Um, Professor Baumgart, who, who designed it, um, basically used it for femoral endings in a retrograde fashion. So, so he would insert it from the knee side. And, you know, for those of you who've looked at the anatomy, the, the, the femur does taper down distally, so it becomes wider at its bottom. So for most patients, you would be able to get a fairly thick nail in there if you went from the bottom up versus from the top down. Um, so that would allow a thicker nail to be fitted into the femur quite safely. 
Um, and then secondly, the reaming of that nail is done in a way that you're creating a hole in the femur that corresponds exactly to the shape of the nail. That's where the name comes from, fit bone. It fits exactly into the bone. So, so in a way that, that has paved the way to get away with slightly thicker nails than we see, for example, with the precise nail. Um, having said that, that is a limiting factor in some bones where we can't go down uh, to smaller diameters. I believe there are custom sizes down to a nine millimeter diameter available, but you know I haven't seen those in my environment. So uh, I would probably look at you know using one of the smaller precise nails if the patient has a narrow diameter, or if he's really small, I would probably go and offer a distal uh, a retrograde insertion where we go from the knee up, um, because there we could probably get a thicker nail in even in the smallest canals. And that's with the uh, the precise or the fit bone you're talking about. Precise or the fit bone. Okay. You can use either of those nails in an integrate or a retrograde fashion. Um, there is a concept concept out there that the precise is integrate and the fit bone is retrograde. That's also nonsense. It's a choice of the surgeon to decide whether I'm implanting it integrate or retrograde. It's just traditionally the people who have done most of those nails. Yeah. Uh, the fit bone has been people who have been trained by Dr. or Professor Baumgart mm -hmm. to do it retrograde. Uh, precise, I think most of us come from the ISKD school right. where, or the BET school or the G-nail school where we used integrate um, uh, nailing. So <laughs> in a way, the surgeon will choose yeah. uh, the approach together with the patient and, uh, you know, it can be done integrate or retrograde. Or retrograde. Wow, I didn't even know that. That's amazing um, information there. And does it cause any other um, issues going uh, retrograde or is it like to the knee? Um, is it like a sub-patellar approach? What, what exactly, how do you uh, insert it? Where, where are you entering from? Generally, you, you line it up to the anatomic axis of the, of the femur, which exits just medial to the midpoint of the knee. So if you imagine a line coming down your femur and it passes just on the inside of your patella, uh, that's about where it exits the knee. So you would have to insert the nail from that point. So that means if you feel on your infrapatellar tendon, that tendon that attaches your patella to your tibia, um, the entry point for the nail would be just to the inside of that in most individuals. So we would miss that tendon and you would come in from the bottom. It sounds horrible to, to go through the knee, you know, because, you know, you know we, can't, we shouldn't go through the knee because we're destroying everything. The reality is that is actually a very benign approach because we're not splitting any muscle. We're not going through any nerves. We're really just going through skin and some subcutaneous tissue and fat. And then we're right in the knee joint and we can protect the rest of the knee joint quite, quite well while we're inserting the nail. So it's actually a very minimally invasive technique in a way. Um, whereas when we come from the top, we go through the abductor muscles of the hip. So if you lie on your side and you lift your leg up to the side, you're using your glutes and your glute medius muscle together with some of the smaller muscles there to lift your hip to the side. Now those muscles are the ones that we go right through with a very big drill to actually get an integrate nail in. So if you look critically at a lot of patients that have had um, femoral nailing and specifically cosmetic lengthening, if they do a single leg stance, they stand on two legs and they lift one up, you'll see that pelvis start sagging. And that's something we call a Trendelenburg uh, sign, which means that you've got weak abductor muscles on that hip. Uh, and a lot of patients have that as a result of having had big nails stuffed through their 
um, abductor musculature. So yes, we do it all the time and we take that risk and so on, but it's not really true to say that a anterograde nail uh, does less damage than a retrograde nail. I think they both do damage. They just do different types of damage. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, you have to choose what, what is going to work best for that specific patient. Absolutely. I did not know that. And I think that's a big, big, huge highlight of this interview right there, because I think that, yeah, and out of all the interviews that I've done with surgeons, I never really asked about the integrate versus retrograde approach and the benefits and downsides of each. So I'm glad you brought that up. Patients are going to love that. For a, yeah. for a, for a surgeon that's trauma trained, an integrate nailing makes more sense because we do it all the time in trauma. That's how we fix femoral fractures in the majority of cases. So from a technique perspective, it comes naturally to us as surgeons. Whereas a retrograde nail is a little bit more cumbersome, a little bit more difficult to set up and so on. So that might be where the bias lies. But anyway, that's a, that's a topic for a different discussion. Uh, Dr. Burkholz, when you're reaming the intramedullary canal of the femur, the tibia, what exactly happens to the bone marrow? Because there's been a lot of, you know, debate about like, you know, you regenerate the bone marrow versus it comes back with a different type of material. You as an orthopedic surgeon, does it regenerate after removal? or you know uh, the removal of the implant or does it fill back in with a different material altogether what happens to the bone marrow yeah i think hell the, these questions all have uh, complicated answers don't they um, <laughs> or, or i make it too complicated maybe i'm not sure <laughs> no. but um i like thinking about things properly um when when we talk about bone marrow it's important to define what we mean um bone marrow in the medical term of bone marrow means a organ that's situated in the middle of the bone that forms blood cells. And, and that, that is in the bone cavity and it, it sits there and it forms new blood cells. And if you think of somebody having cancer, having to have a bone marrow transplant, that's what we're talking about is a blood forming organ, if you will, that is situated in somebody's bone marrow, in somebody's bone cavities. Now, in a growing child, that is all over the skeleton. It's in the whole bone structure. But in an adult or a young adult, um, that changes so that the bone forming component of the bone marrow only really sits in the flat bones. So things like the scapula, the pelvis, um, and right at the end of the long bones. So the, the biggest part of the bone is really just filled with fat. Now, that fat is what you and I know when we go to a restaurant and we eat a fancy steak with bone marrow sauce on it. That is what that is. So that's the fat inside the long bone, not human, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but but th that is essentially what we're talking about. So that, that's really just fatty tissue that sits in the long bones of an adult. And whether that's there or not has absolutely no consequence to, to whether the bone functions, heals or anything like that. What is important is just on the inside of the, if you think of the bone like a pipe, on the outside, you've got a little um, covering, which is called the periosteum. And that is important for bone healing from the outside because it carries blood vessels. But then similarly, on the inside of that pipe, on that cavity, on the surface, there's something called the endosteum, which is also full of blood vessels, full of nerves, and is important in regrowth of bone. Now, to a certain extent, by inserting a nail down the canal, we are destroying that endosteum to a certain extent as well. And there have been animal studies where they looked at re-establishing re the endosteal blood supply. And it looks like in the majority of cases that does come back after about 30 days, even in the presence of a nail being in there. So I think the question is not so much about bone marrow as it is about endosteal blood supply. 
which is important because that's important for regenerate formation, for bone growth, for lengthening and so forth. See, that is an amazing answer. Thanks so much for that uh, answer. Because I mean, literally everybody's like, oh, it grows back. And I, I've been saying that because I don't know exactly what's happened, but that helps a lot. And I guess, you know, we wouldn't really absolutely know until somebody gets a biopsy after the removal. Um, and who wants to go back in to get that done after they get their stature lengthening? So <laughs> very cool. Um, now, the next question I have for you, Dr. B, is one of the most important aspects of lung lengthening, and that is physiotherapy to ensure the patients, you know, their soft tissues can adapt to the lengthening and recover from the whole entire process. So can you talk about the benefits of physical therapy and how many times a week, you know, minimum should a patient actually seek rehab, um, you know, after lengthening? Yeah, I think um, starting with the benefits, I think it's absolutely critical that physiotherapy should be a routine part of any form of lengthening and specifically cosmetic lengthening because as we said earlier we're going to supranormal levels we, we're stretching beyond what nature intended for that limb so uh, so we need to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve i always like to say that i as a surgeon implant a device that actually lengthens your bone but you as the patient together with your physiotherapist will lengthen the soft tissues um, so, so that physiotherapy process is what lengthens the soft tissue and the soft tissue is what gets us into trouble. That's not the bone. So, so in a way I pass the responsibility back to the patient, um, saying that the physiotherapy is going to be what's going to determine how far we get with your lengthening. Um, so to put it simply, more is better. So if a patient could have permanent physiotherapy, that would be fantastic, but nobody can afford that. And I'm sure the physiotherapist wouldn't love that. Um, I think it's important in my mind, the physiotherapy is also not something that the patient can take responsibility and hand it to the physiotherapist and say, you're in charge of my physiotherapy now. So you're in charge of um, stretching and what have you. That's not true. The physiotherapist is purely there to monitor the process, to guide the process, to make sure that we're on track, to provide that safety net. But the real hard work gets done when the physiotherapist is not in the room anymore. And that's when you continue with the stretching exercises, you continue with the, con with the conditioning exercises, you continue looking after yourself while the doctor is not there and the physiotherapist is not there. You cannot give that responsibility to somebody else. If you're not committed to be doing those exercises day in, day out, those stretches, even though they may hurt, um, in your lonely little hospital room or your lonely little hotel room, then the surgery is not for you because the success is going to deter be determined by that. That's going to determine the success. And the physiotherapist is purely there to monitor that process and to guide you along the process. But they cannot be there 24-7. And, and, and that is going to be important. Now, it's also important to have physiotherapists that have your best interest at heart and that have experience with us. Um, in the um, Institute for Orthopedics and Rheumatology, we're very lucky to be linked to a group of very advanced physiotherapists that normally look after high-level sports um, uh, athletes. So you can imagine what that does to their ability to look after muscles and nerves and because they're dealing with high-level athletes on a daily basis. So the goal is really high and um, that's what we try to aim for, right? We want to get this patient back to high level activity, whether it's going to the park to kick a ball with their kids or whether it's going to a high level mountain bike race or a, a sevens rugby match, whatever it may be. So, so the beauty of the Institute is that we have that linked in. That's part of the package 
that we offer our patients is that um, the Stellenbosch Academy of Sport is the academy that's that's affiliated to the Institute for Orthopedics. So, so our physiotherapists are really high level. They're really good at what they do and they push the envelope. I actually have to pull them back sometimes and say, look guys, we're going too fast. Let's, let's slow down. Um, and and that, that's sort of the environment that you want to be in yeah. um, where they push you really hard and they energize you to go through the process because that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think that that's one of the most important aspects that we talk about is physiotherapy, but I can't tell you how many patients who've reached out to me and they're like, will I recover to be able to get back to my athletic, my athletic ability. And you just said, if these, the rehab center that you have there in Stellenbosch is working with high level athletes, and then it's going to cater to these patients, you know, firsthand. So that's amazing. Truly amazing. Um, now, Dr. B, although patients love to know about the surgery, your surgical approaches, the rehab, yeah, it's all fun and games. The biggest thing that they want to know is about the big financial investment that this surgery has. I mean, you know it. It's a cosmetic procedure, so insurances won't cover it. So if you can, mention the cost of cosmetic stature lengthening at your clinic and what your package includes. And I, I don't want to say package, but, you know, the services include. You know, it's, it's always a difficult one. And, um, you know, good things come at a price. We all know that whether it's a bottle of wine, whether it's a meal, whether it's a car, you know, whatever, you know, I think I would again answer this in a complex way. Um, firstly, this is not my core business. This is not the only thing I do. I do orthopedics. I do limb reconstruction, which means people who are get damaged from other reasons. So the cosmetic part of my practice is a really small part. And it's an important part. It's dear to me for the simple reason that those are some of my happiest patients. Um, weirdly enough, um, <laughs> you know, you would think that if you take a person that doesn't have a discrepancy, that doesn't have a deformity, and you break both their legs and you make them taller and you charge them a lot of money for it, that they would not be very happy. But they are some of my most satisfied patients. And that's the reason why I've circled back to starting doing this again, because I, for some time I had some ethical, you know, I still have some ethical questions in my mind sometimes, but the point is that I think I can provide a safe alternative. Um, and I'm saying a safe alternative because the price point I'm talking about actually puts me in reach for a lot of patients who would otherwise end up at some maybe less reputable surgeons that might do harm. And I'm saying it very carefully because I don't think any surgeon in the world intentionally does harm. Um, but unless you have experience with a surgery, um, unless you have a team around you, I don't think it is correct to charge somebody money to try and make them taller because it is really high risk surgery that comes at a high level of expertise that's required. Now, let's get all of that out of the way. Um, my package, if you want to call it that, um, comes in at about, not about, it comes in at 50,000 US dollars. So that, <laughs> yeah, gonna, I could just say it right there. They're going to love that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to rip anybody off, but I also need to make it um, sustainable for me and my team. So, so that's where that price point comes from. The vast majority of that price goes into the nails and the hospital, um, you know, and looking after the patient in a safe way. Um, what that typically includes is all my, my costs, the um, cost for the anesthesiologist, the cost for the hospital, the cost for the nails, the cost for the physiotherapy, um, the wheelchair, the walking frame, 
the crutches. It covers a week in the hospital and it covers two weeks in the rehabilitation unit. Now the rehabilitation unit is like a mini hospital, but it's more focused on rehab. So it is typically a rehab unit that's also geared towards spinal injury patients or old ladies that break their hips. So, so they try and get people back to function um, you know, through admitting them, feeding them properly, and then giving them physiotherapy, occupational therapy, psychology, um, support services throughout. So, so that includes that sort of, let's call it in-facility component. Um, so that would cover the first three weeks, um, that $50,000. Um, beyond that, it becomes a little bit fuzzy as to what a patient might require because our requirements are all very different. And if somebody wants a higher end accommodation, then it would be more expensive. If somebody wants lower end, then it would be cheaper. So, so that's why I've limited it to those first three weeks, which basically takes us from the surgery to the first distraction phase to the first two week follow up beyond that. And um, at that point, the majority of the physiotherapy would be established. Uh, the majority of the pain control would be established and the patient would be able to function in a let's call it a normal Airbnb type of setup. Um, so of course there are options to extend the stay and all of that, but, but you know, the package in my mind should include the vast majority of the medical costs and the initial phase of rehabilitation. Beyond that, of course, rehabilitation needs to continue. So physiotherapy needs to, to continue beyond that, but that would then be structured as an outpatient um, visit to the physiotherapists and um, you know that would be on a uh, like they say in, in mobile phone terms pay as you go terms right so you would then sort of pay pay as you go along but uh, but in broad terms i think the vast majority of the cost gets um, captured in that first quote if you will um, yeah absolutely i think that's phenomenal for one your price is very very competitive among the market for somebody so experienced as yourself um but it includes a lot i mean you get like that top world-class physical therapy team you your surgical team for a week in the hospital i mean most places discharge you within three or four days so it's really impressive what you're doing there in stellenbosch so amazing amazing stuff now what if you had a limb like discrepancy or a deformity and um they're an inter international patient who's coming to see you. Do they need South African domestic insurance or can they use international insurance? How, how does that work exactly? That is very dependent on the insurance company um, involved. Uh, we do generally through the hospital, we do accept um, most reputable international insurance companies. They would need to provide us with a letter of guarantee um, and if it is a reputable company, you know, then, then that would be fine. Uh, we've dealt with TRICARE from the States before. We've dealt with BUPA. We've dealt with uh, International SOS. Uh, we've dealt with MSO. So, so some of the bigger names in the field um, we, we have had dealings with. We've been lucky over the years to treat a lot of the uh, U.S. embassies, military and paramilitary personnel um, through TRICARE. And um, so we've built up a bit of a... Um, a knowledge of how to deal with them and uh, yeah so so in a way if there is international insurance generally it's not a problem as long as it's not for cosmetic reasons and as long as it's um, you know um, done in advance and properly through the channels then generally that's that's not a crisis south african insurance would be difficult because they normally have lockout periods and things like that so it would be very difficult for an international patient to get adequate uh, insurance in time 
to cover them for a local procedure. Um, but also, you know, the RAND dollar exchange rate is quite favorable. And, uh, you know, generally um, people also sometimes sell funds, uh, operations like these. Well, Dr. Bertholtz, um, you're an experienced surgeon, caring orthopedic surgeon who, you know, basically gives hope to your patients by treating their deformities and even, you know, helping them boost their height on a daily basis. So for all the prospective patients out there who just fell in love with you after watching this awesome interview, um, how can they reach out to you? What email, website, how's the, what's the best way of, to contact you? Yeah, I think the, the easiest is um, through my website, um, that is burkholz.health. Um, really easy to remember, uh, really easy to get to, um, just as long as you spell my surname correctly. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult spelling, so I guess we'll put it in the notes somewhere. But uh, yeah, burkholz.health, that's the easiest yeah. one on there. There's a link to the email address that's manned. There's telephone numbers in there. Uh, the address of the hospital is in there. Mm -hmm. um, that email address is manned by my uh, PA, uh, Tessa, okay. who's, who's, who's a great lady. She's got vast experience in dealing with international patients. Uh, she generally acts almost like a concierge uh, for my patients in a way <laughs> um, to give them some extra support and so on. So, so she would be the person that they would be dealing with mostly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that that would be the easiest. Um, email addresses uh, also also pretty pretty easy. But I think the easiest is to go via the website. Everything yeah. is there, and it should be easy to to get hold of us. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to put that uh, below the video. So all you guys who want to reach out to Dr. Burkholz, you can do that by clicking the link in the description below. Um, Dr. Burkholz, any final words that you would like to say to your new fans or anybody who's considering doing limb lengthening with you? I think I think the biggest thing is is don't believe all the hype. Don't believe uh, what the salesmen tell you. Um, do your own research. Make sure that you get to the right person. Um, and that right person is not necessarily me. I'm not trying to sell myself. Um, but get to the right surgeon. Get to a surgeon to whom you can ask the questions to, and they would respond honestly. I think that's very important. Um, lengthening a limb is very easy. Preventing and, ma and managing the complications, that's where the difficulty and where the art and the skill comes in. Um, and, you know, Victor, you probably get a lot of requests on your channel from people who've had complications and, you know, wanting advice and so on. So, so, so my plea would be research your surgeon properly. Make sure you get to somebody that has the experience, that has the ability to pick up complications, prevent them, treat them properly. And, um, you know, there's, there's this old adage, you, you, you can't have something done quickly, cheaply, uh, and well. You can only choose two of those three. So you can choose cheap and quick, but then it won't be done well. You can choose uh, quick and well, but then it won't be, you know, cheap or whatever, you know, so, so you can only choose at any given time, two of those three. So, you know, this is unfortunately surgery that would cost you a certain amount of money to have it done properly. And if you don't have that amount of money, don't skimp on it. This is your health. This is your function that you're playing with. Um, then my advice would be try and find the money somewhere Good luck with that, by the way, but, you know, we're all trying to do that, but, uh, but, but really don't skimp on your health. Don't try and save money um, because this is really important. Your ability to walk, your ability to function, your ability to look after your kids uh, one day. I mean, that, that's a big thing to gamble with. And that would be my biggest plea is to do it safely. Um, don't come to me. That's not the point. Go to whoever can do it safely for you.
Guys, you heard it there first. Safety first by the great Dr. Burkholz. All right, everyone, that is Dr. Franz Burkholz at the IOR of the Mediclinic Orthopedic Hospital in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Dr. Burkholz, thank you so much for your time. See you later. Thank you. I really enjoy interviewing surgeons like Dr. Burkholz, who not only explain the why behind his surgical approach, but also the pros and cons behind others as well. But with techniques, bone length, and devices aside, he still prioritizes the most important aspect above all else, safety. If you're interested in reaching out to Dr. Burkholz for a consultation, you can find all of his contact information in the show notes. Until next time, this is Victor from Cyborg for Life, signing out.